Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that lets you contribute to my work, and that'll help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is also listed in that show notes page. If you contribute at least $4.99 per month, you're eligible for membership in the Ward Republic, which gets you one phone call with myself and the other Ward Republic members each month. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our new sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold backs. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page as well. And if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, but for now through January 1st, my listeners can also enjoy a 1% discount by using code LIBERTYBLOCK. So click on my link in the show notes page and help fuel monetary decentralization today. And don't forget to download the MeWe app and search for me so we can be friends and then I can add you into the show's private MeWe group so we can have sane and rational discourse around historic and current political topics. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. And today we are going to be picking up with our study of the judicial system and the pre-ratification period. Again, this time focusing on what Patrick Henry had to say. Before we get to that, though, um, again, just one other thing. We are trying to reach 1,000 total plays for the month of December. So, I, again, I beseech you, I implore you, I beg you, whatever synonym you want to use, please share the show with anyone and everyone who you think would find interest in it through word of mouth on your social media platforms. Please just spread the show far and wide for this month. And, again, I promise when we get to January and at least through February, I will leave you all alone about that. But we are trying desperately to hit a thousand plays this month. So please do me that favor. But anyway, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our topic. So this again is Patrick Henry's speech in the Virginia ratifying convention made on June 20th, 1788, in which he is decrying the concept of a Supreme federal judiciary. And he says, Mr. Chairman, I have already expressed painful sensations at the surrender of our great rights. And I am again driven to the mournful recollection. The purse is gone. The sword is gone. And here is the only thing of any importance which is to remain with us. And I just have to pause right here real quick. Patrick Henry was such a fiery, fiery speaker. And his, his line there, the purse is gone. The sword is gone. And here is the only thing of any importance which is to remain with us. So what, what he's essentially saying is, look, you've already given the general government the power to tax us. You've already given the general government the power of raising armies. How on earth can we stop them without retaining the power of the judiciary? And that's a very, that's a very prominent point and one that definitely in modern times needs reconsideration. So Henry is, is just, I mean, he is throwing firebombs here right and left. But anyway, we'll go ahead and get back to the speech as I think this is a more fatal defect than any we have yet considered, forgive me if I attempt to refute the observations made by the honorable member in the chair, talking about Edmund Pendleton, and him last up, and there he's talking about James Madison. It appears to me that the powers in the section before you are either impracticable or, if reducible to practice, dangerous in the extreme. The honorable gentleman Edmund Pendleton began in a manner which surprised me, it was observed that our state judges might be contented to be federal judges and state judges also. 
If we are to be deprived of that class of men, and if they are to combine against us with the general government, we are gone. I consider the Virginian judiciary as one of the best barriers against the strides of power, against that power which we are told by the honorable gentleman has threatened the destruction of liberty. Pardon me for expressing my extreme regret that it is in their power to take away that barrier. Gentlemen will not say that any danger can be expected from the state legislatures. So small are the barriers against the encroachments and usurpations of Congress that when I see this last barrier, the independency of the judges impaired, I am persuaded I see the prostration of all of our rights. And here we have some more to unpack. So Patrick Henry is saying that he considers the Virginian judiciary as one of the best barriers against strides of power. Now, why is that? Well, recall from the first episode we did where we really kind of introduced Spencer Rowan, the Virginia courts, they practiced the concept of judicial review, right? So if the state legislature passed a law that the judiciary deemed was not commiserate with the state constitution, then the court would pronounce it unconstitutional and, and the expectation was that the legislature would repeal it. Now, that works at the Virginia level because you're only dealing with Virginia law. And as Patrick Henry says, he thought that that was a very strong feature of the court. Now, when you try to extrapolate that up to the general level, that's actually a really good thing. And Marshall actually took that from Spencer Rowan's playbook. That's a really good thing to have for federal law. If the Supreme Court can say that a federal law is unjust, unconstitutional, and following that it should be repealed, that is actually a really good thing to have. Where that gets dangerous is when the Supreme Court can say that a state law is unconstitutional based on the federal government constitution because the states are not subject to that. The federal constitution is only for the general government. Now, he goes on to talk about something that I spoke on last episode where he basically sees right through the pretext here and he knows that the that the judges are not going to be independent. So he says, look, how, how are we going to do this? We're going to destroy liberty because we're not going to have independent judges. And we are going to have encroachments and usurpations of Congress and that the independency of the judges being the last barriers being stripped away. And he, and he doesn't like that. The judges could be fully independent if they were subject only to the states and then they could review the laws. I mean, not without bias, but it would be more in favor of the people that of their community. Now with that, I think Henry missed the mark a little bit there because it hasn't really been encroachments and usurpations of Congress. I mean, yes, there have been plenty of those, but it's more so been the executive branch because as I've talked about before, and Brian McClanahan talks about this a lot, the office of the president has morphed into the office of an elected king. And we have a very active executive now. Uh, we had one under Trump. We had one under Joe Mussolini. We've had one, honestly, since the turn of the 20th century. And so that, to me, is where more of the threat has come in. Now, granted, Henry had the foresight to say this before any of this was ratified, so maybe he just didn't think the president would be all that dangerous. But in light of how it's actually paid it, played out, I think we actually need to worry more about the office of the president as opposed to what we're seeing with Congress, because honestly, Congress has punted a lot of its responsibilities. But anyway, back to the speech. In what a situation will your judges be in when they are sworn to preserve the constitution of the state and of the general government? If there be a concurrent dispute between them, which will prevail? They cannot serve two masters struggling for the same object. The laws of Congress being paramount to those of the states and to their constitutions also, 
Whenever they come in competition, the judges must decide in favor of the former. This, instead of relieving or aiding me, deprives me of my only comfort, the independency of the judges. The judiciary are the sole protection against a tyrannical execution of laws. But if by this system we lose our judiciary and they cannot help us, we must sit down quietly and be oppressed. And I just absolutely love the phrasing that he used there. But if by this system we lose our judiciary and they cannot help us, we must sit down quietly and be oppressed. So basically what he's saying is, look, if the people are gullible enough to relinquish this power, then, then it's over. And the only thing left now is the crime. And I think over the course of time, he's, he's definitely been proven right about that because we've had so many different cases go before the Supreme Court that either had blatantly wrong case, uh, decisions made or the Supreme Court never had the jurisdiction and shouldn't have heard it in the first place. And now we're, we're really seeing that, as we talked about in our most recent episode with the Mississippi abortion law. The only right answer is for the court to say, look, Roe v. Wade was wrong because we never had jurisdiction. This is a state issue. And then just turn full legislative control of that over to the states. And so Henry, again, very, very prescient and saying, look, if we lose the judiciary when we've already given up the power of, to tax and the power of the sword, then that's it. We're, we just need to sit down and take it like a man, essentially. And back to the speech. The appellate jurisdiction as to law and fact, notwithstanding the ingenuity of gentlemen, still to me carries those terrors which my honorable friend George Mason described. This does not include law and the common acceptation of it, but goes to equity and admiralty, leaving what we commonly understand by common law out altogether. We are told of technical terms and that we must put a liberal construction on it. We must judge by the common understanding of common men. Do the expressions fact and law relate to cases of admiralty and chancery jurisdiction only? No, sir. The least attention will convince us that they extend to common law cases. Three cases are contradistinguished from the rest. In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction both as to law and fact. Now, sir, what are we to understand by these words? What are the cases before mentioned? Cases of common law as well as of equity and admiralty. I confess I was surprised to hear such an explanation from an understanding more penetrating and acute than mine. We are told that the cognizance of law and fact is satisfied by cases of admiralty and chancery. The words are expressly against it. Nothing can be more clear and incontestable. This will, in its operation, destroy the trial by jury. The verdict of an impartial jury will be reversed by judges unacquainted with the circumstances. And what Henry is saying there is that if you turn control of fact-finding over to the Supreme Court and you're basically hauling somebody away from their home, what chance do they have of getting an a fair trial by jury. Again, his whole fear here is that they're going to be subject only to the political whims of the specific justices. And we saw that with Samuel Chase. You, you guys have heard me mention him a lot, but we saw that with Samuel Chase. And just to give you context on what Samuel Chase did that was so bad, he was an outright open supporter of John Adams during the 1800 presidential campaign, which judges are not supposed to be that overtly partisan, but he was, he didn't care. He, he said, I'm, you know what? I'm sitting on the federal bench. Nobody's going to do anything to me. 
Now, after that, uh, there was a case that involved a Pennsylvania man named John Fries, and John Fries had actually been charged with treason during the Whiskey Rebellion or because of the Whiskey Rebellion. And what happened was Fries actually had to go to court before the federal judiciary, right? So he made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what Chase did, because Chase was actually the justice who was sitting there kind of administering that particular case, and what Chase did was before arguments were ever even heard, so before the defense counsel ever even had an opportunity to speak, Chase determined in his mind that Fries was guilty and he handed down his written verdict or his written opinion to the clerk before Fries was ever even given a chance to defend himself. So that is exactly what Patrick Henry was just absolutely terrified of, is if you give that much power to the Supreme Court, Anybody and everybody could be punished as a political dissident. And that is something that we've seen. Think about the January 6th event. Those people have been sitting in jail, have not been given any sort of a chance at a fair hearing or anything of that nature. So all kinds of problems with that. But Patrick Henry saw that. I mean, years before even the Fries case happened, Patrick Henry saw what would happen, as did many of the anti-federalists. They said, you cannot trust these people with this much power because they will abuse it. And back to the speech. But we are told that Congress are to make regulations to remedy this. I may be told that I am bold, but I think myself, and I hope to be able to prove to others, that Congress cannot, by any act of theirs, alter this jurisdiction as established. It appears to me that no law of Congress can alter or arrange it. It is subject to be regulated, but is it subject to be abolished? If Congress alter this part, they will repeal the Constitution. Does it give them power to repeal itself? What is meant by such words in common parlance? If you are obliged to do certain business, you are to do it under such modifications as were originally designed. Can gentlemen support their argument by logical or regular conclusions? When Congress, by virtue of this sweeping clause, will organize these courts, they cannot depart from the Constitution, and their laws in opposition to the Constitution would be void. If Congress, under the specious pretense of pursuing this clause, altered it and prohibited appeals as to fact— the federal judges, if they spoke the sentiments of independent men, would declare their prohibition nugatory and void. In every point of view, it seems to me that it will continue in full force as it is now, notwithstanding any regulations they may attempt to make. What then, Mr. Chairman? We are told that if this does not satisfy every mind, they will yield. It is not satisfactory to my mind, whatever it may be to others. The Honorable Gentleman James Madison has told us that our representatives will mend every defect. I do not know how often we have recurred to that source, but I can find no consolation in it. Who are they? Ourselves. What is their duty? To alter the spirit of the Constitution? To new model it? Is that their duty or ours? It is our duty to rest our rights on a certain foundation and not to trust to future contingencies. We are told of certain difficulties— I acknowledge it is difficult to form a constitution, but I have seen difficulties conquered which were as unconquerable as this. We are told that trial by jury is difficult to be had in certain cases. Do we not know the meaning of the term? We are also told it is a technical term. I see one thing in this constitution. I made the observation before, and I am still of the same opinion, that everything with respect to privileges is so involved in darkness it makes me suspicious, not of those gentlemen who formed it, but of its operation in its present form. Could not precise terms have been used? 
You found by the observations of the gentleman last up, James Madison, that when there is a plenitude of power, there is no difficulty. But when you come to a plain thing understood by all America, there are contradictions, ambiguities, difficulties, and whatnot. Trial by jury is attended, it seems, with insuperable difficulties and therefore omitted altogether in civil cases. But an idea is held out that it is secured in criminal cases. I had rather it been left out altogether than to have it so vaguely and equivocally provided for. Poor people do not understand technical terms. Their rights ought to be secured in language of which they know the meaning. As they do not know the meaning of such terms, they may be injured with impunity. If they dare oppose the hands of tyrannical power, you will see what has been practiced elsewhere. They may be tried by the most partial jurors, by their most implacable enemies, and be sentenced and put to death with all the forms of a fair trial. And right there, again, think about what actually transpired on January 6th. Nothing about that was violent except for the police officer who shot an unarmed woman on the grounds. If and when these people ever do get their day in court, they will be tried in the D.C. area. And think about the nature of people in general who live in D.C. They're mostly creatures of the general government. There is no way that that can be considered a fair trial. Their fate will be sealed before they ever even get into the courtroom. And so, again, Patrick Henry is just knocking the ball out of the park on this. But back to the speech. I would rather be left to the judges. An abandoned juror would not dread the loss of character like a judge. From these and a thousand other considerations, I would rather trial by jury were struck out altogether. There is no right of challenging partial jurors. There is no common law of America, as has been said, nor constitution, but that on your table. If there be neither common law nor constitution, there can be no right to challenge partial jurors. Yet this right is as valuable as trial by jury itself. My honorable friend George Mason's remarks were correct with respect to incarcerating a state. It would ease my mind if the honorable gentleman would tell me the manner in which the money should be paid if in a suit between a state and individuals the state were cast. The honorable gentleman perhaps does not mean to use coercion but some gentle caution. I shall give my voice for the federal cognizance only where it will be for the public liberty and safety. Its jurisdiction in disputes between citizens of different states will be productive of the most grievous inconveniences. The citizens of bordering states have frequent intercourse with one another. From the proximity of the states to each other, a multiplicity of these suits will be instituted. I beg gentlemen to inform me of this. In what courts are they to go, and by what law are they to be tried? Is it by a law of Pennsylvania or Virginia? Those judges must be acquainted with all the laws of the different states. I see arising out of that paper a tribunal that is to be recurred to in all cases when the destruction of the state judiciary shall happen, and from the extensive jurisdiction of these paramount courts, the state courts must soon be annihilated. It may be remarked that here is presented to us that which is execrated in some parts of the states. I mean a retrospective law. This, with respect to property, is as odious as an ex post facto law is with respect to persons. I look upon them as one and the same thing. The jurisdiction of controversies between citizens and foreign subjects and citizens will operate retrospectively. Everything with respect to the treaty with Great Britain and other nations will be involved by it. Every man who owes anything to a subject of Great Britain or any other nation is subject to a tribunal that he knew not when he made the contract. Apply this to our citizens. If ever a suit be instituted by a British creditor for a sum which the defendant does not in fact owe, he had better pay it than appeal to the federal Supreme Court. Will gentlemen venture to ruin their own citizens? 
Foreigners may ruin every man in this state by unjust and vexatious suits and appeals. I need only touch on it to remind every gentleman of the danger. No objection is made to their cognizance of disputes between citizens of the same state, claiming lands under grants of different states. As to controversies between a state and the citizens of another state, James Madison's construction of it is to me perfectly incomprehensible. He says it will seldom happen that a state has such demands on individuals. There is nothing to warrant such an assertion. But he says that the state may be plaintiff only. If gentlemen pervert the most clear expressions and the usual meaning of the language to the people, there is an end of all argument. What says the paper? That it shall have cognizance of controversies between a state and citizens of another state without discriminating between plaintiff or defendant. What says the honorable gentleman? The contrary, that the state can only be plaintiff. When the state is debtor, there is no reciprocity. It seems to me that gentlemen may put what construction they please on it. What, is justice to be done to one party and not to the other? If gentlemen take this liberty now, what will they not do when our rights and our liberties are in their power? He said it was necessary to provide a tribunal when the case happened, though it would happen but seldom. The power is necessary because New York could not before the war collect money from Connecticut. The state judiciaries are so degraded that they cannot be trusted. This is a dangerous power which is thus instituted. For what? For things which seldom happen, and yet because there is a possibility that the strong energetic government may want it, it shall be produced and thrown in the general scale of power. I confess I think it dangerous. Is it not the first time among civilized mankind that there was a tribunal to try disputes between the aggregate society and foreign nations? Is there any precedent for a tribunal to try disputes between foreign nations and the states of America? The honorable gentleman said that the consent of the parties was necessary. I say that a previous consent might leave it to arbitration. It is but a kind of arbitration at best. To hear gentlemen of such penetration make use of such arguments to persuade us to part with trial by jury is very astonishing. We are told that we are to part with that trial by jury which our ancestors secured their lives and property with, and we are to build castles in the air and substitute visionary modes of decision to that noble palladium. I hope we shall never be induced by such arguments to part with that excellent mode of trial. No appeal can now be made as to fact and common law suits. The unanimous verdict of twelve impartial men cannot be reversed. I shall take the liberty of reading to the committee the sentiments of the learned Judge Blackstone so often quoted on this subject. The opinion of this learned writer is more forcible and cogent than anything I could say. Notwithstanding the transcendent excellency of this trial, its essentiality to the preservation of liberty, and the extreme danger of substituting any other mode, yet we are now about to alienate it. But on this occasion, as on all others, we are admonished to rely on the wisdom and virtue of our rulers. We are told that the members from Georgia and New Hampshire, etc., will not dare to infringe this privilege, that as it would excite the indignation of the people, they would not attempt it. That is, the enormity of this offense is urged as a security against its commission. It is so abominable that Congress will not exercise it. Shall we listen to arguments like these when trial by jury is about to be relinquished? I beseech you to consider before you decide. I ask you, what is the value of that privilege when Congress and all the plenitude of their arrogance, their magnificence, and their power can take it from you? Will you be satisfied? Are we to go so far as to concede everything to the virtue of Congress? 
Throw yourselves at once on their mercy. Be no longer free. Then their virtue will predominate. If this will satisfy Republican minds, there is an end of everything. I disdain to hold anything of any man. We ought to cherish that disdain. America viewed with indignation the idea of holding her rights of England. And whew, Patrick Henry's got my batteries charged reading that. So what he's saying is there was a time that he can remember basically that America viewed their rights as derived from the creator. It was not held at the pleasure of any government or any governmental body. And so what he's saying here is he's begging them, will you please consider what you're about to do? You're about to give up everything to the good whim of your rulers, of your masters, essentially, is what he's saying. And so, again, Patrick Henry is just, I mean, he is absolutely on fire in this speech because as we have seen, the nature of government tends to attract some of the absolute worst individuals because it attracts people who only care about power. They don't care about people's rights. They don't care about a natural rights theory. They don't care about any of that. They care about getting in power and holding power. And so what Patrick Henry is saying here is that, look, I remember a time where we held our rights to be derived from a different source. We do not get our rights from government. And he's saying right here, if you concede this, then be no longer free. And he is absolutely right. Now we have a populace that is so apathetic and they don't care about anything to do with politics. All they want is an escape. All they want is a good time. And even with the pandemic, it has exposed so much of that. But people seem to be slowly but surely, maybe they're finally waking up. And we need to have that spirit of resistance to remind these Machiavellians our rights do not come from them. Our rights are preordained. We are endowed with our rights by our creator. And it's time, past time actually, that the Cretans in D.C. remember that. And again, this is Patrick Henry telling us before anything went into effect, think about what you're doing. So now it's time to rouse the sleeping giant of the masses and remind them that, look, power is derived from the people. Now, granted, the people can have disagreements. That's fine. But ultimately, power derives from the people. We do not receive our rights from government. Back to the speech. The parliament gave you the most solemn assurances that they would not exercise this power. Were you satisfied with their promise? No. Did you trust any man on earth? No. You answered that you disdained to hold your innate, indefeasible rights of anyone. Now you are called upon to give an exorbitant and most alarming power. The genius of my countrymen is the same now that it was then. They have the same feelings. They are equally martial and bold. Will not their answer therefore be the same? I hope that gentlemen will, on a fair investigation, be candid and not on every occasion recur to the virtue of our representatives. When deliberating on the relinquishment of the sword and purse, we have a right to some other reason than the possible virtue of our rulers. We are informed that the strength and energy of the government call for the surrender of this right. Are we to make our country strong by giving up our privileges? I tell you that if you judge from reason or the experience of other nations, you will find that your country will be great and respectable according as you will preserve this great privilege. It is prostrated by that paper. Juries from the vicinage being not secured, this right is in reality sacrificed. All is gone, and why? Because a rebellion may arise. Resistance will come from certain counties and juries will come from the same counties. I trust the honorable gentleman, James Madison, on a better recollection, will be sorry for this observation. 
Why do we love this trial by jury? Because it prevents the hand of oppression from cutting you off. They may call anything rebellion and deprive you of a fair trial by an impartial jury of your neighbors. Has not our mother country magnanimously preserved this noble privilege upwards of a thousand years? Did she relinquish a jury of the vicinage because there was a possibility of resistance to oppression? She has been magnanimous enough to resist every attempt to take away this privilege. She has had magnanimity enough to rebel when her rights were infringed. That country had juries of hundreders for many generations. And shall Americans give up that which nothing could induce the English people to relinquish? The idea is abhorrent to my mind. There was a time when we would have spurned at it. This gives me comfort that as long as I have existence, my neighbors will protect me. Old as I am, it is probable I may yet have the appellation of rebel. I trust that I shall see congressional oppressions crushed in embryo. As this government stands, I despise and abhor it. Gentlemen demand it, though it takes away the trial by jury in civil cases and does worse than take it away in criminal cases. It is gone unless you preserve it now. I beg pardon for speaking so long. Many more observations will present themselves to the minds of gentlemen when they analyze this part. We find enough from what has been said to come to this conclusion that it was not intended to have jury trials at all. Because difficult as it was, the name was known and it might have been inserted. Seeing that appeals are given in matters of fact to the Supreme Court, we are led to believe that you must carry your witnesses an immense distance to the seat of government or decide appeals according to the Roman law. I shall add no more but that I hope that gentlemen will recollect what they are about to do and consider that they are going to give up this last and best privilege. And so that wraps up Henry's speech. I tried to add some fire to it because based on everything I've read about Henry, he was a very spirit-filled orator, to say the least. But again, reflect on everything he's saying here. It is critical to have trial by jury because you get a chance to be heard before your peers. You are not subject to the whims of some political appointee in many cases that we don't even have the ability to elect, especially for the Supreme Court or federal courts in general. They're all appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. And again, think about that in terms of modern times. Kyle Rittenhouse was set free because of a strong jury. You have the January 6th people who were denied so far the right to trial by jury. You have the Ahmaud Arbery case where a jury convicted all three people involved. So think about everything that Henry is saying here. Do you want to leave your fate subject only to the whims of your rulers? And thank you all again for tuning in. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener. And don't forget to help fuel monetary freedom by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your goldbacks today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.